Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I am Tevi Troy, your host. This is New Books in Public Policy. Each week, we look at a new book in public policy that has been important to our government or senior policy officials. And this week is no exception. We're going to be talking to Stuart Baker, a former high-ranking senior official from the Department of Homeland Security. He was the first assistant secretary for policy at the Department of Homeland Security. He's written a book called Skating on Stilts, Why We Aren't Stopping Tomorrow's Terrorism. I also would like to give a little podcast news. We've gotten our first review. It's by Anne is a man who does podcast reviews, and he said this is a very interesting and engaging podcast. And so it means that other people are listening, enjoying the podcast, and I hope you are as well. Please feel free to send in requests of books that should be discussed here on the podcast, always looking for new ideas. We have to find about 15 new public policy books a year, so I know there's a lot of books published. It's always good to have suggestions for which books are worthy of discussion here on the podcast. And with that said, we will lead into the interview with Stuart Baker, the author of Skating on Stilts. Hello, and welcome to Stuart Baker, the author of Skating on Stilts, Why We Aren't Stopping Tomorrow's Terrorism. Stuart, it's nice to have you. It's a pleasure to be here, Debbie. It's, uh, so you've got your book uh, written from Hoover Press. Um, and um, it looks like it's got a great cover with a picture of a guy who's skating on these very elongated stilts, and he's, uh, it looks like he's about to, to fall on the pond, and he also looks kind of confused and angry. Uh, and almost, uh, we had a podcast a few weeks ago of a guy who did a book about international relations and zombies, and the guy almost looks like either he's running for a zombie or actually could become a zombie himself. <laughs> yes, you're right. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, am a, I was a comic book fan from early on in my life, uh, so when I got the chance to do a cover, I went looking for an artist who did uh, comic-style uh, uh, graphic art. Uh, 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 but uh, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't completely thrilled with the uh, the face, but the overall uh, atmosphere of the uh, the cover is exactly what I was hoping for. Yeah, and it does definitely have that that comic book feel. So what, to get started, why don't we ask you to tell a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, you know, I've been in and out of government. I, I practice law most of the time uh, in Washington, but I've been in and out of government uh, since the 70s. I helped start the education department. I was general counsel of the National Security Agency. Uh, I testified to the 9-11 Commission. I in, helped investigate the WMD uh, intelligence failures uh, in the, uh, the lead up to the Iraq War. And then most recently was asked to go over and become the first assistant secretary for policy at the Department of Homeland Security under uh, Michael Chertoff. Uh, and I've developed this habit of leaving government and spending a little bit of time at a think tank actually thinking and trying to write down the lessons uh, that I learned in government. Uh, I, and um, this time it got, you know, uh, I, I overachieved and ended up with a book instead of just an article. Uh, and that's uh, that's how we ended up with skating on stilts. 
That's funny. That's kind of what I'm doing. After my student government, I'm spending time at a think tank. Uh, yes. Can you explain one thing about your, your bio for our listeners who, who don't know? You said you're Assistant Secretary for Policy. I know before I entered government, I didn't know what an Assistant Secretary was versus a Deputy Assistant Secretary versus an Undersecretary. Can, can you kind of explain what all that means and, and where you were in the hierarchy and why it was that when I was at the White House, you and I were across the table from each other in literally an endless number of meetings? Yeah. Um, it, Formally, there are a secretary, a deputy secretary, or maybe more than one, an undersecretary, uh, and an assistant secretary, and that's the rank order. Um, the, um, uh, the Department of Homeland Security didn't have anybody who did policy, at least in a formal sense, uh, when uh, uh, Michael Chertoff came in, uh, and he and Michael Jackson, the, the deputy secretary, thought that was something they wanted to fix. Uh, and they envisioned an undersecretary and, in, in some respects, a number three job at the department as uh, a policy job, and they asked me to come over and take that on. They said, oh, we only have authority right now to make you an assistant secretary, but we'll get Congress to fix that. Uh, uh, and um, uh, that's the only promise they ever made to me they didn't keep, but they were not able to get Congress to fix that uh, uh, but they were able basically to treat me as the number three um, official in the department for purposes of interagency discussions and the like on the theory that the policy office ought to understand everything and uh, that the department's doing. And uh, apart from the general counsel, there was nobody else who you could usually assume would know enough to go to an interagency meeting and uh, uh, express the view of the department. Uh, there was nobody else who had that kind of breadth of vision uh, uh, of the department's activities, and that's the role that they wanted me to play. Now, explain a little bit why that is so difficult, knowing the full breadth of activities of the Department of Homeland Security, how big it is, and how wide its purview is. Yeah, the department is um, the third biggest in terms of personnel in the um, uh, in the government. The other two are the Defense Department and a spin-off from the Defense Department, the Veterans Administration, uh, the Veterans Department. Uh, um, and so DHS is really roughly the size of the Department of the Navy or the Department of the Army. Uh, and for much the same reason, uh, it is an operational uh, uh, department. It actually delivers directly the services that it provides. Uh, it doesn't oversee other people and tell them how to do their job. Uh, it doesn't uh, write regulations. It doesn't write briefs. It actually goes out and uh, it's something, you know, if people need to be inspected uh, before they get onto planes, uh, TSA does it. If they need to be inspected and interviewed before they get into the country, then CBP does it. If they need to be arrested because they're sneaking across the border, then the Border Patrol does it. If they, if they need to be protected from assassination or crimes need to be investigated that have an effect on uh, uh, the critical infrastructure, the Secret Service does it. So it was a collection of, of agencies that had missions in which they actually delivered the services and they're seven, seven and a half really big organizations with many, many moving parts. Um, and to understand what they're actually doing uh, from day to day and to make sense of it so that it has a coherence uh, and, and fits the 
overall mission that the department was created to, to meet um, does require an enormous amount of effort and a very uh, big bandwidth. And one other complicating factor is, is you mentioned the Secret Service. Well, that used to be part of Treasury. And you mentioned the Border Patrol people and the immigration folks. That used to be, it was renamed, but it was part of the Department of Justice. So what was it like integrating these new units into one larger unit in Department of Homeland Security, which itself was a new entity? You know, it's, uh, it, it, I, I, I realized only after I left that I had participated in creating two of the last three federal departments uh, created, the Education Department and, and DHS. And I realized also why I'd gotten to do that is because nobody who understood Washington would want to be involved in that, uh, and I just was sucker enough to, uh, to do it. So, um, when you create a new organization in Washington, it's usually because somebody else has failed or was perceived to have failed, uh, and you're taking – there's no unoccupied turf. There may be turf that isn't being properly done, but everybody thinks that they own everything that the government uh, should be doing. And so you are taking turf, you're taking resources, you're taking authority away from other agencies. Those other agencies uh, are burning with resentment. They think that they've been unfairly accused of not doing the job properly, and they think that their failures were the result of it being impossible to do the job right. And uh, they will be delighted to help you demonstrate that the job can't be done by the new guys either. Um, and so you are buying into turf fights at a time when you have almost no ability to carry out those turf fights because you don't yet actually control the resources. You, you uh, become the supervisor of, as we did, of agencies that could trace. I mean, we had existed as a department for for years, uh, I, and we were supervising agencies that uh, existed under Alexander Hamilton, uh, and we're quite happy to tell you that they'd been around since the founding of the Republic, and they didn't really need your advice. Um, and so you're you're both fending off other agencies that think you um, uh, are bound to fail and are glad to help you. Uh, and you're trying to get a handle on agencies uh, inside the department that often don't see much point in reporting to you or involving you in their affairs. So it's a, uh, you're really trying to create a new culture in a time of great stress, and ordinarily these new institutions are created because there's an actual crisis where actual failures have occurred. So in addition to all the turf fighting and authority building and culture creating, you're actually trying to do a mission too. So it, it, it's pretty stressful. Uh, on the other hand, um, the one really good thing about DHS is not once the entire time I was there did anybody say to me, you know, we don't do it uh, that way around here. Um, they never gave me a sense that uh, uh, creativity was not welcome. Uh, uh, that's often the case in government, that creativity is not welcome. But uh, in a new institution where everybody's still feeling their way, there were real opportunities to shape policy and to rethink missions uh, um, uh, that would not have been possible uh, uh, in another 10 years. 
You know, the, the first part of your answer before you got to the, on the other hand, sounded like a perfect explanation of the title, Skating on Stilts, you know, trying to do something incredibly difficult in a very high-stress environment where the stakes are incredibly high. Can you talk a little bit about the title, what it means, and what the overall message of the book was? Yeah, there's really two meanings to the, uh, to, uh, to the title, and one of them is exactly that. You are, uh, and, and I felt the entire time, I was up on stilts, trying desperately just to, to, to get one leg in front of the other in time not to uh, end up on my face, uh, have the department end up on its face, uh, uh, constantly going to meetings wondering if I knew enough to get through the meeting and to um, uh, express the, the views of the department. Uh, and I think everyone felt that way, that um, we were uh, rushing from crisis to crisis trying to make sure that we had uh, handled each one properly. Uh, the other meaning of a, a book is the theme, which is that uh, we are embracing as a country, uh, we embrace technology, we, we love the change that it brings, and we are comfortable with the idea that we can have exponentially increasing uh, abilities, capabilities provided by our technology, whether it's uh, international travel and jet travel and the ability to uh, travel ever cheaper and ever more often to the, what the computer gives us in terms of Moore's Law of uh, every two years uh, a, a uh, uh, half the price and uh, uh, equivalent computing power. Um, or biotech, which is uh, uh, producing the ability to reproduce uh, life forms uh, faster than Moore's Law has, uh, has been allowing us to improve our capabilities in computing. All of those are technologies that are constantly accelerating, and we've gotten used to the idea that we can have a sort of stability and acceleration. And what I'm suggesting with the title of Skating on Stilts is there is a price to be paid. Sooner or later, we're going to discover new instabilities in these constantly accelerating technologies, and we need to plan for that, or we will find that we are skating on stilts more powerful, faster, uh, but the fall is much more damaging. Yeah, that was definitely a, a theme that I felt when reading the book, this notion of the increased complexity leads to increased opportunity, but also additional challenges. I, I will say, just as an aside, that you said you were in many meetings and you didn't always know what you were talking about or you felt you didn't know, but I say I was in many, many meetings with you and you always knew plenty, so I was imp impressed with that. <laughs> um, but this gets to an interesting point about the, the the complexity. I mean, Americans love technology. We want to embrace technology. We think technology has been has been our our compensating advantage or what what uh, what makes us uh, superior economically in many ways, or has made us superior economically for many years. On the other hand, we're kind of the big target. We've got that big uh, series of red circles on, on our chest, and a lot of people are gunning for us, and they're not. Um, Sometimes uh, people miss, uh, I guess, underestimate uh, our, our opponents, but but you don't do that at all. I mean, you are very cognizant of their capabilities and and, and know that they're they're gunning for us and that they can use our technology against us. What are some ways we can mitigate that? Well, I think I mean the, the uh, I, I I have been accused sometimes of, of writing a pretty depressing book, and I guess it is depressing, but I didn't mean it to be. I think um, if if you See the bad things that, that are 
logical, likely consequences of uh, future trends, you can do things to make sure those consequences don't arrive. But you have to face them squarely and not uh, engage in wishful thinking uh, and just hoping that, it won't, that bad things won't happen uh, because uh, that will not uh, that will lead you to uh, fail to prepare for uh, uh, the worst and therefore almost guarantees that the worst will happen. And uh, uh, I, I talked about that in the context of uh, the jet, which was the coolest technology, the, the pinnacle of the first 60 years of the 20th century in which the great romance of technology was with heavier-than-air flight and the embrace of that. And the civilianization of the jet enabled us to double travel every five years for 50 years. Um, and people built business models on that. They were enthusiastic about it. Uh, uh, what they didn't notice or preferred not to think about was that it was making it more and more difficult to know anything about the people who are coming into the country uh, and to do any kind of security screen uh, on those folks, uh, something that uh, we discovered uh, uh, on September 11 had really set us up for catastrophe. And I think if we had been a little more cognizant of the way in which we were having a secondary effect on our security um, from the fact that travel was doubling every five years, that we could have done things, indeed we did do them after September 11, that would make it less likely that uh, um, uh, the doubling of travel every five years would cause these problems. So what, what I uh, talk about in the book is that uh, um, for the longest time, the travel industry, privacy groups, uh, uh, people who wanted uh, the tourism industry to uh, to flourish resisted doing anything at the border. Um, they just wanted people move through faster, and, and by the end, we were moving them through at 30 seconds per person. Don't get to do a lot of research on people in 30 seconds. Um, after September 11, recognizing that we couldn't stop the travel, we said, well, how can we keep moving them at 30 seconds per person and still have more security? And the way we did it is to get a little more information about them before they came to have back-end systems that would uh, uh, correlate the information we had about the travelers with correct information we had about the threat. And that allowed us to take one person out of 200 out of that 30-second line and spend... 30 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half with them, um, really trying to determine whether they were a threat or not. And at the end of the day, we still do have fast travel and a lot more security. Uh, what I'm disappointed by is the fact that we couldn't have done that in 1995. We had to wait until we had a disaster to do it. And then I talk in the book about other technologies that are going to empower people in uh, ways that we won't like, even though we love the technology and its impact uh, in general, uh, both uh, cyber, uh, you know, computer technology and uh, the developments of biotech, uh, uh, both wonderful technologies, deeply empowering, going to, to make an enormous and positive difference in our lives but potentially at some point uh, could lead to new forms of disaster that we should be planning for now. And unfortunately, 
We're doing what we were doing in 1995 about travel. We're waiting to see whether these bad things are really going to happen. And I think they will. I, I would like to have us prepare for them in advance rather than uh, wait for the disaster and then respond. You know, one point you make in the book is that it's not that we're waiting because government officials are dumb or ignorant or have their heads buried in the sand, but that there are actual powerful forces on the other side of a lot of these debates. I mean, you talk a lot about the, the passenger manifest uh, struggles and the, um, the, the dreaded acronym VWP. And, you know, in, in, and I'd like you to explain the acronym, but, the, um, but, but in these, you, you say that the, dealing with the Europeans was difficult on some of these questions, the privacy lobby in the U.S. and, and abroad uh, created a lot of challenges for you. So it's not just that we're facing an opponent that wants us to do us harm, but within we have our own struggles. We do, and part of that is you know a, a basic conservatism. Let's not do anything until we know that there's a need to do it. Uh, but I, I I was quite struck by the fact that uh, there were really three parties in most cases who didn't want the government to prepare for perfectly predictable. Uh, disasters, uh, and they were usually the business community usually had some uh, stake in continuing the uh, exponential change uh, on which they built their business models. Um, European, not just the Europeans, international um, governments generally respond badly to proposals to change anything uh, because they first want to look at it very carefully to make sure that it isn't actually going to hurt them in some way or advantage the U.S. in some way. Uh, and so their first reaction to any new U.S. proposal is, is no, let's think about it some more. By the time they've figured out that uh, they can make it work for their uh, uh, industry or their uh, interests, uh, you're 10, 15 years down the road, uh, and uh, the problem has often moved on. So uh, I can talk a little bit more about Europe because I think they have particular difficulties dealing with the U.S. Uh, uh, and then uh, the last of the um, categories of, of opposition, at least to things that relate to security, is a very well organized and quite bipartisan um, uh, uh, privacy uh, campaign that usually marries up uh, the far right and the far left um, who are united in suspicion of government, which they quite accurately believe is not going to carry out their um, agenda because they're on the extreme, uh, and who would prefer to see government not do anything if they can uh, achieve that. And so we saw a number of, of campaigns, even after 9-11, designed, for example, to say that the Transportation Security Agency shouldn't have access to the kind of information that we have access to at the border so that they couldn't do the kinds of uh, uh, individualized uh, screening that occurs routinely at the border. Um, Ironically, uh, that produced a much kludgier system in which all Americans are treated as suspects when they try to get on a plane. Uh, and uh, we are looking for weapons in ever more intimate ways because we're not allowed to look for terrorists because we weren't allowed to give uh, to get access to the information. I think finally people are beginning to realize that they let the privacy groups sell them a bill of goods when they uh, – 
not prohibited TSA from having access to information about travelers. And the ice may, be, may break up on that, uh, uh, but we've lost uh, 10 years um, trying to pursue a, uh, a, uh, an approach to air terrorism that doesn't look at who's getting on the plane. Um, and that, uh, that was typical of the sort of privacy reaction that we got for pretty much any security-related mission uh, measure, unless you could show that there's already been a disaster. And so in the area of cybersecurity, in the area of uh, uh, biotech, uh, security measures are often stalled by uh, concerns about privacy. I'll come back to the BWP and, and Europe uh, now. Uh, the European Union was built originally as a kind of uh, counterweight to the United States, which was perceived as having this great continental market uh, uh, that allowed it to achieve economies of scale and then dominate uh, individual markets in Europe. Uh, and so even though it was always friendly, um, it always had a slightly um, uh, anti-American or uh, we need to counterbalance American attitude. Uh, and so in trade negotiations, quite quickly, uh, international trade negotiations became a butting heads between uh, the European Union and the United States over the rules of trade. Uh, um, and that inclination to both imitate the United States by building a continental market and oppose the United States by standing up for European interests against uh, uh, U.S. interests, uh, that uh, kind of dual approach to the United States has come to be part of the culture of Brussels, and even as Brussels has gained authority over a whole host of additional areas from privacy to uh, counterterrorism, uh, um, Jesus regulated Jesus, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, and, but they always, when they think of us, they 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 gird their loins, they do battle, they want to say no. The, the first answer is always no, we're going to get in your way, don't talk to our governments, talk to Brussels. Um, and then while they're saying no to us, they're busily often imitating the U.S. behind uh, uh, inside Europe. Uh, and uh, trying to extract a uh, uh, some kind of um, uh, tariff from the United States before going along with uh, whatever the U.S. proposal is. That's just a constant theme in our relations with Europe uh, that is quite obvious to government officials but rarely seen by ordinary Americans. Uh, we certainly had that in spades on this question of whether uh, we should have access to travelers' information before they arrived in the United States. And we thought, well, how can we do any research on, on travelers and know which ones we want to uh, set, um, pull up aside for more detailed questioning unless we know who's coming? And the way to do that is to get access to the reservations that people have made to, uh, uh, to fly to the United States, and we told the airlines that they needed to give us access to that information. The European response was to say, uh, we think that's a violation of privacy, uh, and we want to negotiate how the U.S. is going to carry out its law enforcement and counterterrorism mission using this information. And 
come to my astonishment, they actually wanted to rebuild the wall that had been so discredited after 9-11 uh, and say the information could only be used by one agency in the United States government and no one else. Uh, um, a, and we had bitter and endless fights with them. Uh, they had negotiated one deal before um, uh, I showed up. Um, we blew up that deal, uh, negotiated a second, and then a third. And since uh, I departed, the uh, Europeans have gone back and tried to renegotiate a fourth. They're in the process of doing that with the Obama administration, which is, uh, you know, if, probably only slightly more amenable to uh, uh, the European complaints than we were. Um, uh, and yet, I, I, I suspect that from the European point of view, just the fact of the negotiations is somehow validating. Look, we're holding up the great, the, 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 the superpower, uh, and they have to listen to us, they have to talk to us, they have to accommodate us in some fashion. Uh, it's almost as though the journey is the goal. Uh, they, they'd be happy if they could have negotiations over this issue for the next 30 years. You know, you, you mentioned all these uh, challenges, and it kind of reminds you of the, the famous and frequently used cartoonist image. I know you said you like comic books of the 89-year-old grandmother getting a, a full cavity search while the suspicious-looking character with the wires coming out of his suitcase gets on the plane scot-free. And I think one of the messages of the book is that that doesn't just happen by accident. It doesn't happen because our government officials are, are incompetent. It happens because there are some people who are saying, hey, we don't want you to look at everybody. And even, I know you make this one excellent point in the book, that the some, some of the people who are criticizing the look at people in advance strategy were trying to prevent the government from using the capabilities that the average business, business traveler has on his own smartphone. And the same government can't even use an iPod to look at somebody who's about to get on a plane. Yeah, it, well, this was, I think, the the the, um, uh, the police at Logan Airport were, were going to have access to uh, um, uh, public databases, so that if they stopped somebody who was suspicious, that they could they could find that, and he told them a story, they could check his story using public uh, uh, data. Uh, and they had it on a, 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 a mobile PDA. Um, a, this is information that anybody could have used uh, uh, to gather information about any of us, uh, sort of Google um, tax records and a variety of other public sources. Um, and the ACLU acted as though it was the second coming of Big Brother, uh, uh, criticizing the uh, uh, the technology as, you know, a giant dragnet database in the hands of the government. Uh, uh, and I think that that overreaction is the default for a lot of privacy groups. Uh, and I, I kind of understand why they feel that way. They know that, in fact, 10 years from now, these kinds of technologies will be so commonplace that we'll all have access to them, as you said. Uh, and then the idea that government can't have access to them will seem a little silly. So they have to catch us right at the beginning when the technology is still a little strange and can be portrayed as creepy, uh, and then they try to get a legislative limitation on government access to the data. Uh, I think they do it in part out of a sense of weakness, that, that they won't be able to sell this to the public uh, if the debate goes on too long. Uh, but the result is that, uh, as I said earlier, uh, the first reaction to the, of the privacy groups to almost any 
new use of technology by uh, government for security purposes is to say that it's an evil plot to destroy the privacy and democracy and rights of Americans. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, you might say, okay, well, fine, you know, that's just uh, how politics works. But it really does have a cost. And I, I think the, the lesson of the book is uh, uh, we can't assume that more privacy is always a good thing. Um, we had uh, a decade of more privacy in the 1990s that culminated, and I tell this story in the book, uh, in the uh, a, a secret court in the United States, launching what amounted to a witch hunt uh, against the FBI for failing to observe uh, a whole set of new rules about what it could and could, could not have access to by way of intelligence information. Uh, and all of that was going on. Um, the FBI was consumed by fear that their careers would be ruined by privacy scandals in 2001 during the summer at the same time that everybody else in the intelligence community was saying, uh-oh, you know, something is up, uh, there's going to be a big attack, we've got to be watching for it. Um, and the FBI inside the United States was was watching not so much for that as for uh, um, uh, risk to the um, uh, intrusions on the wall and a failure to observe the wall. And so, you know, when they got word that there were two terrorists in the United States from Al-Qaeda who everybody knew were stone-cold killers um, and the existing law enforcement unit that had been set up to investigate the coal bombings said, we got the resources, let us at it, we'll find those guys. The answer that came from the lawyers and from the court uh, was essentially, sit down and shut up. You're not supposed to be, uh, you're on the wrong side of the wall. You're not allowed to know about this, and you're not allowed to do anything about it. Uh, and uh, so the job of trying to find those guys in late August was left to a very understaffed uh, um, uh, intelligence side of the FBI. And, of course, they didn't find them until... Uh, Three hours after the planes hit the uh, the World Trade Center, uh, and obviously the, the the two guys who were missing or the, who they were looking for were part of the, the were, were ringleaders in the attack. Yeah, that's right. And you keep mentioning the wall, and I think you may want to explain to our listeners this is the, the so-called Gorelick Wall, right? The the wall that yeah, I don't I, I don't like to blame uh, uh, Gorelick for it because I think that's a little unfair. It, it, it Probably should have been called the FISA court wall, but no one knows what the FISA court is. But, uh, yeah, the, uh, in the 1990s in particular, as prosecutors began to take the view, one that, that I think Eric Holder perfectly epitomizes, that they can handle anything that any terrorist dishes out and that, that the best way to deal with terrorism is to prosecute the terrorists. As that became the, uh, the, the, common view of the Justice Department, uh, um, it became harder and harder to separate the intelligence gathering that was aimed at trying to figure out what terrorists might be doing from the regular law enforcement in, uh, evidence gathering that uh, uh, results in uh, wiretaps being introduced in court. Uh, but they're, they, they proceed under very different authorities. A lot more is allowed of intelligence agencies pursuing threats against the United States than is allowed of criminal investigators. And the solution to that problem, that they were really two very different authorities, was to build a wall between the two and to say the 
criminal investigators will use their tools and they will play by criminal rules and they won't see or participate in what the uh, intelligence agencies are doing and they'll the intelligence agencies will participate by will use their rules and gather information using their techniques and if they don't share it with law enforcement then it doesn't have to be introduced into court it doesn't get challenged for under the exclusionary rule you don't have to observe the rules that are uh, set for criminal investigators and that wall was sort of a cobbled together solution for a problem that was created by the convergence of law enforcement and national security on the terrorism problem. Uh, in the end, trying to keep these two guys who really in many cases had the same uh, targets separate created great inefficiencies and, uh, as I said uh, earlier, ended up uh, with the people who had the resources, who could have found those uh, uh, the 9/11 hijackers while they were still in uh, planning mode, uh, not being able to find out about or to investigate the uh, uh, the attackers, uh, and uh, the intelligence side of the FBI, which was not well developed at the time, uh, charged with responsibility and not able to carry it out. Uh, um, that was that wall was built for a Civil liberties, privacy purpose. Uh, everybody uh, thought it was a perfectly good idea and uh, maybe not necessary, but not worth fighting about because uh, the desire to show that we have ever more privacy protection was a high priority for um, the, the administration, uh, really uh, uh, several administrations uh, in the 90s and into 2001. Uh, and uh, as I said, uh, the idea that you can't have too much privacy at the end of the day costs us very dearly, and we, we need to recognize that you can, and there really is a cost to uh, constantly piling new privacy restrictions on the intelligence agencies and on um, law enforcement. We're getting a little tight on time, so there are a lot of questions I'd still like to ask you. So let's move to what I'll call the lightning round. Um, I'll just ask some quick questions and get some quick answers, and then before we go to our signature final question, that you'll get a few moments. Um, what are the acronyms BWP and CFIUS, and why are they important? Okay, BWP, Visa Waiver Program. This is the program that allows people to allows us to go to England without getting a, a visa first and allows the Brits to come here without getting a visa first. Saves a lot of time, uh, but gives us less information. We reformed that program and expanded it to Eastern Europe by building in a whole bunch of new security measures and basically saying to the Europeans, uh, um, I know you want us to expand VWP to Eastern Europe. You're going to have to give us some security in exchange for that. And the critical function, the critical decision we made was to approach individual governments and not Brussels with that deal. Um, that succeeded and uh, the Obama administration has continued to carry it out. It's a, it's a, it's a great success. CFIUS uh, is a, a committee on foreign investment in the United States. If you buy a company in uh, the United States or that does business in the United States and you are a foreign company, uh, the U.S. has the authority to review that uh, transaction for its impact on national security. Usually, that, for example, if you wanted to buy Raytheon, uh, uh, people would worry about what that meant for U.S. national security because they're a big defense contractor. More interestingly, 
if you wanted to buy a telecommunications or high-tech company and then supply high technology to Americans, um, the U.S. would look at the uh, transaction to say, do we think that um, the buyer will actually use this technology to install spyware, to install uh, uh, faults in the uh, uh, information technology infrastructure of the United States? And if so, we're going to have to turn the transaction down. And we, we did that, uh, and there have been several fights since uh, I left office uh, in the Obama administration in which that's been a big theme uh, and it will continue to be a theme. It's one of the few tools we have that allows us to regulate private information technology for national security purposes. But it really blew up in the Bush administration, I believe, right? <laughs> yes, I'm oh, sorry. You're right. I, I, I was repressing uh, my memory of... I was too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it did blow up in, in the Bush administration, and there's a long story. It turns out that it was the result of uh, uh, slightly off-target lobbying by some uh, very small company in, in Florida uh, who just managed to express a concern about this Dubai port deal that wasn't accurate, but was close enough to accurate that by the time the truth had its boots on, the lie was around the world, and uh, there was a full-fledged panic in Congress trying to um, get further to the right uh, uh, in condemning the uh, the transaction. It was a purchase of a, uh, a company that provides uh, warehousing services and uh, imports in the United States. Uh, pretty plain vanilla, but at the time it turned into a kind of hysteria about... Uh, 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 people from the Middle, Middle East somehow sneaking into our ports. Uh, um, I think at the end of the day, kind of ironically, uh, as with a lot of these uh, hysterias in Congress, uh, people in Congress ended up a little bit ashamed of it. Um, and uh, um, at the end of the day, um, uh, the uh, the issue resulted in very little change in policy. Uh, um, uh, there was a new law. The new law mostly uh, codified things that were doing, going on uh, already. Uh, there was a port security bill uh, um, that provided more or less the same powers that DHS already thought it had, uh, um, but it was a, um, uh, a one-day wonder or a one-month wonder, uh, uh, and I, I can't count the number of hours I spent testifying about uh, why we approved that deal. I still think we, there was the right answer, but you'll have to read the book to see why. Yes, yeah, sure was enough. Last question before we get to our signature question, which is, who is Howard, or who was Howard Crank, and why is he important? Howard Crank was a, uh, a, a retired Vietnam vet uh, who uh, didn't have a lot of money, but he got a computer, and he got online, and he uh, uh, was just delighted with it. It allowed him to uh, catch up with old buddies from uh, the Army and uh, uh, to uh, uh, research favorite charities. He got a an email. He wasn't a very sophisticated guy about the internet. He got an email saying you won the lottery, Spanish lottery. Um, Nigerian? No, it was Spanish, and he responded to it, which is just you know most of us would not have done that, but he was you know he he thought it was a piece of mail to him, uh, and the, he fell into the hands of scam artists 
who basically took him for everything he had, uh, uh, left him a broken man. Uh, in fact, he uh, he died, and his daughter told me she thought that really he died because he knew uh, how badly he had been taken. He was leaving his wife uh, uh, bankrupt and without a home uh, and uh, had, had destroyed his life savings by continuing to send money to the um, uh, folks who claimed that it any minute now, he'd be getting a uh, hundred times that in payments uh, from the Spanish lottery. Uh, and I, I use that as a, uh, an analogy for our relationship with the technology, the, the, the computer technology. It, every new step makes us happier, it, you know, uh, uh, the ability to do online banking, to uh, 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 communicate with our friends, to... Uh, exactly. It's, it's all wonderful, and it, it, every incremental step is an improvement, but, and, and that was true for Howard Crank, too. He loved what the, the technology allowed him to do, until suddenly it just took everything. Um, and it took everything because um, the technology allowed the crooks to send out a million you have won the Spanish lottery notices, and then begin working the people who self-identified as susceptible by responding to the email. And then they would they would hand that off to an actual scam artist who would uh, continue tugging on the thread until he was pulling uh, uh, large amounts of money out of the uh, the victim. Um, and I, I I fear that's where we are with the technology uh, with computer technology. It's great. The fact is, we now live in a world where probably a dozen countries could cause massive power failures in the United States, and maybe power failures that would last for six months or more because they could destroy the equipment, not just turn it off. Uh, it's you know all the podcasts in the world it's probably not worth living six months without power with with your neighbors also having no power. Yeah, I mean, we can look at North Korea and see what it's like to uh, be in a country where there once was power and there is no longer. It's very sad. Well, and, and, and ironically, they, they're actually pretty good at this. Uh, because, and one reason they, they love the, 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 the weapon, cyber weapon, is there's just no way to retaliate. I mean, there must be four Apple twos left in uh, uh, the entire country, and you know, taking them down isn't going to make any difference. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that somebody thought your book was depressing, and the, the Howard Crank story was certainly depressing. And, and the scariest part of the book, I thought, was this way that your own computer can be used against you. It could get you in a scam. It could be a listening device so that uh, people could listen to everything you're saying. It could be a keystroke catcher to get your passwords. It could be a, um, uh, a bug or a, um, a, a video camera watching you. So uh, you need to be careful of, of your own technology. Uh, I really appreciate all you've done in the interview. It's been a great interview. I want to ask you now our last question, our signature question on New Books and Public Policy, which is, if you were czar for a day, given what you've learned in writing this book and in living your uh, your policy experiences in, in the government, what policy changes would you promulgate to make us better, safer, stronger, faster, et cetera? Yeah, I think I would I would try to deal with the two threats that I identified in the book. I, I at least begin to deal with them. Uh, the, the risk that computer technology is is going to take us to a, a big fall um, by instituting security requirements 
for um, uh, the critical infrastructures, uh, you know, the power companies, the phone companies, uh, people on whom our entire civilian life depends. Make sure that they actually are um, adopting standards that will meet the, the, the threat that we have. Um, and at the same time, um, develop a much more realistic view of the likelihood of cyber war. Uh, I think it is likely, and we are not preparing for it. We've got you know, more people thinking about whether it's legal and when it's legal than about how to win it. Uh, and, you know, that's not a good way to, to win a, law, a, a war. Uh, so I would, I would actually try to focus and uh, um, develop our cyber defenses, our civilian sector defenses, our uh, defense, uh, uh, DOD defenses, and our ability to actually threaten in a realistic way massive retaliation against people who tried to use that weapon against us. Uh, um, and uh, so that would be on the one hand. And then biotech, which I have feel much less confident about what the final solution is, but um, everything that's scary about computers is scary about uh, biotech. Uh, we're going to be handing the ability to manufacture new diseases and old diseases uh, to an increasingly large number of, uh, of people until sooner or later it's going to fall into pretty irresponsible hands. And uh, the one thing that I have suggested that I continue to think would probably work to give us at least a sense of what people are doing and impose some basic discipline around the world on uh, misuse of this technology is to say, if you want a biotech patents for some organism or invention that you have developed using biotechnical uh, uh, capabilities, if you want a U.S. patent, then you're going to have to demonstrate that you're meeting some basic biosafety and biosecurity rules, and we will come inspect you to see if you're doing it. And I think that uh, we, we could spend 50 years trying to get other governments to agree to that, but companies are so to get the benefit of U.S. patents, but I think they would comply even if their governments weren't enthusiastic about compliance with those norms, and that would start us down the path of creating new norms in the biotech area that hopefully will make it much less likely that people will use this technology in ways that could uh, you know, change the face of humanity. Two interesting ideas from a very interesting person who's written an excellent book, Skating on Stilts, Stuart Baker. Thank you for joining us today on New Books in Public Policy. It was a pleasure. You have been listening to an interview with Stuart Baker, the author of Skating on Stilts, Why We Aren't Stopping Tomorrow's Terrorism. Stuart, fascinating and smart guy who is a former senior official at the Department of Homeland Security, talked to us about acronyms and why they matter and all sorts of threats that face our country, and why improving technology sometimes makes it harder for our security officials. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. My name is Tevi Troy. This is New Books in Public Policy. Next week, we'll have another book of public policy import. Until then, keep reading.